Rusty Quill presents. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We all feel the urge to run sometimes. Pressure builds up around us, pushing on our chests and head, caving in the soft bits inside our ears and eyes until we feel fit to burst. Money, family, loneliness, the struggle to be known, the pain of being forgotten, it all stacks up and gets heavier. And heavier. And heavier. And when it gets to be too much, there's a part of you inside that lets you know, we need to run now. We either run or we die. Today's story is about a girl who decides to run. She's taken all she can of the life that was given to her at birth, a life that's had terrible consequences for most all of the people who've gotten tangled up in it. She gets involved with a soon-to-be notorious outlaw and cuts a path of crime and pain across America until she arrives at her final destination, a thousand miles from where she started, feeling like she'd never really left at all. 
But before we get to that, I've got some recommendations to throw your way. First is the book A Winter Haunting by Dan Simmons. People familiar with the West Side Fairy Tales might be familiar with that name from last season, when I talked about his book Summer of Night. Summer of Night is my favorite horror novel ever, period, ever. And Winter Haunting is the spiritual sequel to that novel. It takes place decades after the events of Summer of Night, which have been collectively forgotten and overshadowed by time. Dale Stewart, one of the main characters from the original novel, is now old and living out the ass end of a life ruined by his infidelities to his wife of many years. The story is a ghost story, in the best and most traditional sense. Dale moves into the home of his childhood friend, murdered in the original novel, to write and reacquaint himself with his childhood home. He comes to find himself haunted, both by the ghosts of his past, the ghost of his own guilt, and the honest-to-God ghosts that have taken up lodging in and around the home. Don't go near this book if you haven't read Summer of Night, but if you've taken me up on that recommendation, this could be one of the best books you'll ever read. It's a love letter to a bygone time and a bittersweet meditation on the travails of life, aging, and what remains of love and friendship after the people in your life are gone forever. Most of all, it's the story of a man trying to learn to forgive himself, and it's written absolutely beautifully. I'd also like to recommend Gamma Radio, a podcast that has so little in common with the last recommendation they'd be uncomfortable sitting next to each other on the bus. Gamma Radio is a comedy radio show set in the irradiated future remains of England. It's a fucking masterpiece of subtle and not-so-subtle British humor, and the episodes are filled with great original music and sometimes told in long-form epic poetry. Nothing I say about this show will do it justice, so just do me a favor and check it out whenever you get a second. You won't regret it. Now, without further ado, today's story, Child of Sparrows. It's Junebug. I got no real idea how this might come to you, but by post afraid the lawman's hand, you should know it's me this time. I read in the paper that folks been writing you on occasion saying they're me and apologizing for all the mischief I got up to. I ain't written to you but once since I left home, and that's right now. That reminds me of the sign up at Bussers, the one that hanged over the stationery. If you're gonna write, write right. Were they selling Bics or what? I can't remember. Buses is where this all started, but of course you know that. In fact, I presume you might know a whole lot more of this than when I left back in spring. Delilah has liked to have told you how I met Todd, Mr. Lightning T. Daniels of National Infamy, when he drove that fine Cadillac up to Buses for some ice cream. Maybe you've talked to the others, and they'll have lied if they said I didn't want to go with him. I guess that's all true. But what they didn't tell you, couldn't tell you, is that I saw Todd for the first time a week earlier. He was working up at the Targrady Pits when we went up there on a field trip so the boys could see how they were going to make their money one day and the girls would know how hard their men were going to be worked. He smiled at Carla Weathers, not me, when we walked past him in a group, even tossed her a lump of furnace coal and told her there was more where that came from. She blushed, but so did I. I wanted a man like that to look at me. Since I left Arson County, I found there are a lot of men like Todd, especially in the big cities. But just six long months ago, I thought there couldn't be a second man like him on earth. He was tall, bristling with muscle and sweaty charm, 
and polished smooth and clean looking despite the grime on his coveralls. He didn't look like the fat, broken coal miners or their simple, soon-to-be-broken sons. He didn't look either like the bloated, soft-handed bankers or turned-out souses that came up from the rail yard for church some Sundays. No, he was a man of his own making. He was smoking that first time, cloistered in a little taped-off area and leaning against a broken rail cart. He tied his coveralls shoulders around his waist and his grimy undershirt clung to his torso like cellophane. Maybe every girl saw him. Maybe it was only me. I committed him to memory the way I had started dorm with certain men. Certain I'd never see him again. I was wrong, of course. He came up to Busser's a week later in a casual sort of hurry. Nonchalant but rushed, sauntering into the place and ordering an ice cream milkshake with a cherry on top. Mr. Pushkin gave him a mean look, but started smiling all the same when he dropped the cash on the counter. Real hard currency. Big bills like I'd never seen a man his age carrying before. He rested his back on the bar to drink and look around. His legs splayed out before him. He had thick heels on the black leather boots that left dark scuffs on the floor. His jeans were tight, very tight for a man, and ended in a broad black belt at his hips. He had a white t-shirt on above that, also tight, and a black leather jacket. He looked like an absolute criminal. And when he ran his hands through his hair, my God, mother, I just didn't know what to do with myself. It doesn't look like that now, as you might guess. By the time you get this letter, I suppose what Beauty Todd had known on this earth would have all but fled him. But at that moment, he looked like an angel. One of the kind that wasn't afraid to tell God what he thought then and again. And I wanted him to fall into my arms. He finished his drink and I followed him outside. The other girls, Delilah. Ethel, Mary, they squealed and urged me to come sit back down. None of them would have ever had the courage to follow him out that door. None of them did. They'll live long lives, I suppose, telling their children about me as a cautionary tale. But I didn't care what they had to say then, and I certainly don't now. We talked by his car. I fixed my blue eyes on him the way I'd been practicing in the mirror, trying my best to look like one of them girls in the cigarette ads. It must have worked because he stopped telling me to get lost and got lost himself, running his hand through that hair and leaning against the car. I told him he had bad posture, and asked him real slow that if that car wasn't there, what else would he like to lean against? You should have seen the look on his face. Todd likes to try looking like a wolf. He licks his teeth, is the most noticeable thing. And I'd never seen a wolf before he took me to the zoo. That's where I first made that connection. He could almost bristle that big jacket of his like a pelt. He made himself stand on his toes like he might spring at any minute. But he was a puppy on the worst of days. You and me, Mama, we know about real wolves, don't we? He told me he liked the way I talked to him, and I asked what he meant. He told me I shouldn't play with fire, and I told him I didn't play with fire, but that my daddy let me use matches sometimes. He laughed and asked me what I was after, and I told him he had a nice car. He asked if I wanted a ride. I said yes. We drove out by the high school and he tried to put the moves on me. I said no and we drove some more. Up north into Carbonus County, up past Guncotton into the highway, then back down for roads I'd never seen before. Past little hamlets and nowhere towns full of staring black or white faces and the occasional house set into the hillside where nobody could possibly get to it. He got quiet as we drove. I asked him if he was mad that I turned him down, and he laughed and said that wasn't it. 
He told me he wasn't from West Virginia and had to be leaving soon, real soon. I asked him how soon, and he said tomorrow. Then he told me I might not want to be around buses around noon, and I asked why. Though it's obvious to anybody now what he meant by that. Then he dropped me off. You were awful mad at me when I got home. Slapped me on the face, as I recall, and hard, too. I cried for you the way you like and ran into Daddy. He shushed me and patted me on the head. How is he now? You done with him? Is it time to move on again, or are your wings too old to catch the wind? I'll never know the answers to those questions, but I have my suspicions, and they help me sleep nights. I went to sleep, and you woke me up in the middle of the night. I remember what you told me, though I won't commit that hatefulness to paper. And you squeezed me where it hurts, twisted and pinched the way you do, and told me not to ruin things the way I always did. You reminded me of what Daddy had to lose for us to live there, what my life meant to the people around me. And the second you left that room, I packed what I thought I'd need in my backpack. I hid my school things under the bed, where I'm sure you eventually found them. I ate breakfast, full knowing I was about to leave Blunt, West Virginia for the last time. To leave you for good. We had eggs. I told you they were delicious. You rode me to school that day. I thought you'd figured me out, having done that same shuffling ride a dozen or more times just in my lifetime. But you didn't suspect a thing. Not from your dear little June bug. You sat there in the Packard, gripping the steering wheel with your prim white driving gloves, hair up underneath one of them silk head wraps you started wearing in Cincinnati. You could have told me you loved me. Any number of nice motherly things I see women say to their children in the movies Todd eventually took me to. But you just gave me your typical sermon, the one I always got after one of your late night visits. And you told me I was old now, old enough to be a threat if I didn't watch myself. You reminded me I could be replaced. You warned me I better behave. I watched you drive off down the dirt road that led to the dismal one-room learning shack they called a school, and that was the last I ever saw you, in person at least. I saw you in the news a few weeks later, crying on the front page of the Charleston Independent Star and asking me to come home. Then a couple months after that on the New York Times, crying and telling me you better never see me again. That headline read, Mother Mourns Recalcitrant Daughter. It made me smile. I didn't even go inside the school. Some of the other girls would eventually tell the police they saw me walking, with determination, towards some other destination. I actually stopped and talked with Debbie Marks, asked her to cover for me until the afternoon, just in case. I've never seen that detail in any newspaper, so I guess she kept that little tidbit to herself. Smart girl. I sat alone in buses until noon, and he showed like clockwork. The shiny red Cadillac pulled up at the far end of the corner lot, and he sat there alone, his eyes blocked by square black sunglasses. The armored truck pulled up a second later, and I figured out the score right there and then. The truck had the big Walther High-Sec Transportation Inc. logo down the side. Any kid in the valley could tell you that was the payroll wagon. He had to bring cash down to the pit bank for payday. You take into account all the money they needed to pay the workers and make purchases, and there was maybe $20,000 in there. At least that's what Todd thought. A paunchy old man came in wearing a Walther security uniform, and Todd came in behind him. Now, things may have been changed up a bit in the papers. Those newspaper men like to make a lot of interesting additions to the stories about us, particularly this one, painting Todd as some smooth Lothario who just talked people out of their money. 
Once we were famous, sure. That actually happened a couple of times. But this time he was nervous. Scared, even. He smiled under those beetle shell glasses and put the gun against the security man's head. Told him to open the back of the truck. And you know what that security man did? He said no. Honestly and truthfully, that old man with his mustache and bent back told Big Lightened T. Daniels no and went back to his coffee. Todd might have just turned and walked out if not for me. I screamed and ran to him, getting the attention of the few old men sitting around taking their coffee. Even Mr. Pushkin dropped a skillet in the kitchen and ran out. I wasn't letting anybody ruin this for me. I jumped between Todd and the old man, pressing the big automatic pistol with my chest so my breast showed full and large to either side of it. He swallowed. I felt his insecurity. I begged him not to hurt the old man. I'd do anything. Just drop the gun and walk away. He recognized me and asked under his breath what I thought I was doing, and I yelled for him to take me instead at the top of my lungs. He grinned and pulled me close to him. I twirled into his arms like a dancer, relishing the warmth of his forearm against my cheek even as he pressed the automatic to my temple. That display made short work of the busser's patrons. They begged Todd not to hurt me as I worked up some tears and hollered about how he was just confused. The old security guard looked at the other patrons like they'd lost their minds. I suppose they had. They almost tore the man's clothes off trying to get at his keys so the big bad man in the leather jacket wouldn't hurt the pretty blonde. It was like a dream how fast we went from the inside of that diner to driving down I-64 at nearly twice the speed limit, laughing like crazy. He didn't even want to let me in the car with him at first, but I convinced him the locals were all heavily armed and would shoot him to pieces the second I left him. By the time we reached Charleston, he didn't even care. We counted the money from the heist in a filthy motel on the edge of town. Then we had sex. It wasn't wonderful, but I loved it all the same. The ecstasy of my escape from Blunt clouded over the meager pain of his entrance. I loved the smell of him, his sweat covering my chest and stomach, the way his arms crushed my body against his. It ended almost as quickly as it had began, and I let him finish where I shouldn't have, but I didn't care. I was free. I slept in his arms on a pile of ill-gotten money, more cash than I'd seen in my whole life, $10,500. That was the first night of honest sleep I'd had maybe my whole life, and the first time I hadn't dreamt of little Trixie since that night by the old woodshed last fall. Little Trixie, not my sister, as you might say. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Of course, I don't have to remind you of that. You were there. Or do I? I certainly haven't seen you mention it in all those wonderful little stories you're in. I cut each one I find out of whatever paper and keep them in a small card box Todd bought me in Arizona. It has a turquoise June bug on the lid, which he thought was adorable. He'd bought himself one just like it that holds a bent blackened spoon, some rubber tubing, and an oversized eyedropper with a needle tied to the end. My big, beautiful man had a bad habit. I was surprised how fast we could go through all that money. Money you could live off for a year gone in just a few weeks. But he spent it on me, too. Buying me books and clothes and nice dinners at places where people spent big cash on little plates. He made new friends and lost them every week. Even tried to lose me a couple times, but after a while he knew that I was his and, more importantly, that he was mine. We traveled across the states pulling that exact same heist we'd thrown together on the spot at buses at every stop. I changed my hair color after the papers started reporting on me, going from blonde to red and finally to black. I tried brown for a second, but it reminded Todd of his mother, and he wouldn't touch me until I changed it. He talked about her, his mother, quite often. I lied about you. I said you were great, real decent. I convinced him on that first sweaty night in Charleston that he'd left those nasty bruises on my nipples. I was just a fragile thing. He was too big and too rough. I also convinced him I wasn't a virgin because I couldn't tell him that you'd broken me when I was 12, kicking me between the legs because I wouldn't stop crying. Because Brian, not my brother, and Pauline, not my sister, they kept calling my name as the car slipped beneath the waves at Glass Shard. I never told him about any of that. About Kevin or Julianne or Matthew or Ronald or Victor or Samuel or Michelle or Rebecca that not my sisters and not my brothers I wasn't allowed to mourn, and the parade of daddies who were only ever to be called Daddy and not Mr. Kelso or Mr. Valentine or Father or Papa or Dad. When we traveled through Cincinnati, Gary, Decatur, Chicago, and Pierre, I told him I'd never been to any of those places. And all the while I glanced out the windows of our stolen cars looking for that riverbank, that ash pile, that abandoned lot. I never told him how those road trips made me feel like my mother, a sparrow on the wing, looking for a new nest. And I never told him about Trixie. Our heists worked the way we'd been doing them until we reached a little bank on the outskirts of Fresno. I'd always gone inside first, scouting the place out on the pretense of opening a checking account. 
Then I'd be the hostage when Todd stormed in and demanded the money. But this time someone was waiting for us. The kind of girl acted strangely when she saw me, and I didn't notice anything off about the way she looked down at her lap. Now I know she was looking at my picture. She must have pressed a button or something because a man swept up behind me and whispered in my ears that I better behave. He told me I needed to tell Mr. Daniels to surrender as soon as he walked in the door. I started crying real loud. Customers walked over and started asking the man what he was doing. Then he cuffed me on the back of the head and told me to shut up. Some Dudley do right took that chance to run up and dick him one, knocked the big man out cold. I thanked him and ran off in hysterics. I found Todd in the same alley where we'd parked. There was a man at the head of the alley where Todd couldn't see, facing away from me with the gun sticking out of his sport coat. Clean and simple, I walked up, slipped his gun out of its holster and shot that man to death. Then I put his gun in my purse and walked into the alley, where Todd was standing with his own gun out. We hopped in the car and I explained things as we drove like mad out of California and across the Rockies. That was at the height of summer, so I'm sure you know all about that. Dragnet, federal agent shot dead by Lightning T. Daniels in the June bug. That's what the paper started calling us around that time. The first time I ever saw those names was in the Des Moines Register. I clipped the article out and put it in the box with a little turquoise June bug on the lid. The fame and the pressure got to Todd and he started getting rough in bed, doing all those awful things to me that you used to do, the poking and the prodding and the twisting. But it felt so good when he did it. He would get sullen afterwards sometimes and tell me I was too beautiful for things like that. He said that he was debasing me, that I was a flower and if he plucked me I'd wilt. I told him I was his June bug, and the only thing he had to do was keep me from flying away. He liked that. And he was a good man, despite how we made our living. He didn't yell or cheat or hit me, with a single exception on each account. The cheating I wouldn't even call cheating. You see, Pickens got slim after the botched job in Fresno. Cops were looking for us like never before, and we couldn't stay in the same place long, much less cause a stink with the big heist. So we did little things robbing underground casinos and junk dealers. I carried a gun then. The agent's mean little thirty-eight special, in fact. I don't know what such a big man had needed with such a tiny gun, but it fit my tiny hands perfectly. I killed three men with that gun. The agent, another, and one I'll tell you about right here. His name was Buggy, and he was something of a hot shot for South Dakota. Buggy knew Todd from a stint in a Minnesota prison Todd didn't talk about much and apparently they owed each other a host of favors. Buggy had everything Todd needed that wasn't me, most of which came folded up in little paper squares and dollar bills. Todd started doing small jobs for Buggy, enforcing running packages, and he'd leave me cooped up in a dingy motel for days at a time. I got sick of that real fast. It reminded me of Blunt, and all the little cages you kept me in before Blunt. I went out on the streets and found Buggy's place by dropping his name here and there. By the time I found the dive he operated out of, a converted speakeasy with big steel shutters over the door, Buggy knew I was coming. Buggy was a nasty guy, as his name suggests, and he had a bad habit of spectacle. He was the biggest show, the only show, in town, and he made sure people knew he was important. He dressed like a mobster let on that he knew a few made guys, though we never quite had the courage to call any by name. His suits were new and as nicely tailored as you could get out here in the sticks, but they did nothing to shape up the nasty little man. 
He had a sloppy gut and breasts that disturbed the spread of his lapels, along with a stringy black comb over and a thick, warty nose. He intercepted me just inside the door and told me where to find Todd. I had figured he wanted to keep Todd around in town to fold him into the crew for the respect Lightning T. Daniels' name would bring. But I hated South Dakota and that nasty little town, and I wanted to leave. When I left, Todd would go with me, but only if we were still together. Buggy didn't want that to happen. He led me to the main room, where Todd lay back on a couch almost completely off his mind from the stuff. A pretty girl, red-haired and about my age, was on her knees in front of him, her mouth where you'd expect. I sighed as Buggy started on some rant about men these days and how he never expected he'd walk in on something this shocking. Todd's eyes took a few seconds to focus on me, and he started trying to push the girl off him. I think Buggy expected me to start crying and run out of that grungy hole in the ground, or maybe to just fall apart right then and there. The only thing I'm sure of is that the greasy little pusher man had a low opinion of women. I saw his point and made him a counter-argument. The girl, undoubtedly in on the whole thing, looked up at me with a smirk on her face, almost daring me to do something. I went over to Todd, still so beautiful in his sweating delirium, and pulled his switchblade out of the interior pocket of his leather jacket. Dull recognition dawned on the red-headed girl's face just a second too late as I grabbed a fistful of that hair and sprang the blade open. I cut her just twice, long strokes that made necks on her pretty young face. They didn't bleed until I pushed her away, then they wouldn't stop bleeding. She blindly ran from the room, screaming for somebody to help her. Buggy jumped to his feet and started toward me, cursing. I pulled the Federal Agent's snug little thirty-eight out of my purse and shot him through his ugly nose. The bullet pulled off the back part of his skull and everything inside spilled out when he hit the ground. I remembered Trixie right then. Her skull coming apart in the dark of the woodshed. Her beautiful face, so like a tiny angel's, ghastly and malformed in the smoky light of your kerosene lantern. Dirt on my hands. Blood underneath my nails. Dogs in the woods and your harsh whisper telling me they couldn't smell her. They wouldn't smell her. Keep digging, June. Keep digging. I'm still digging that hole now. Gonna keep digging until I hit bottom. Until I get down low enough to pull the sides in over me like a blanket. There may be blood and heat at the end, I know. The smell of pistol smoke and burning flesh. But before I go to hell, I'll smell that rich West Virginia earth. And I'll feel splintered wood in my hands as I work, work, work that shovel. She called me sissy, goddamn you. She called me sissy. The security man from the front came down with a pump-action shotgun in his hand. I didn't kill him. Just asked him if he'd ever been shot before and pointed at what was left of Buggy. I told him neither of us were going to miss at this distance, and he agreed, dropping the shotgun. I promised not to shoot him or anybody else if they filled a tablecloth with money and drugs and didn't try anything funny. Nobody did, so I kept my promise. Todd never apologized for the way I found him down there. He refused to even talk with me until we were in St. Louis. He had another friend down there, Luther, who was a much better friend than Buggy. Luther took half of what we had off our hands in exchange for the keys to a room in a north side tenement. Todd got drunk the first night and slapped me when I wasn't expecting it. I fell on the ground and started crying in earnest. 
I'd never been hit by anybody I cared about before, and it hurt so much worse than when you hit me. He told me I was crazy, and who did I think I was? He told me he didn't know who I was anymore, and asked what right I had to be involved in myself and his personal matters. He told me that just because we slept together, he used a different phrase, that didn't mean I had any right to pry into his affairs. I told him I was pregnant, and he took a seat at the edge of the bed. His fine, dark hair was in disarray. He apologized to me and told me he'd do whatever he could, but his heart wasn't in it. He sounded tired, wrung out. I knew then he was probably going to leave me. I started concocting ways to keep him. And then I thought of you and all my daddies across this great God-fearing nation, and I stopped. I really was. Still am. Pregnant. Rest assured, you'll never see the child. Todd got himself shot a couple weeks later. He burned through all the rest of our money and the drugs we'd stolen from Buggy in the days after I told him I was carrying his child. Luther set him up with the crew knocking over drug dealers in town. None of them ever knew he was the famous Lightning T. Daniels from the paper, and none of them would have cared if they did. I don't know the specifics of how he got hurt. I do know he showed up to the job almost too high to stand on his own. I know they relied on him to do something, and he failed to do it. And I know it took some special intervention from Luther to keep the crew from putting a bullet in Todd's head right then and there. He was shot by a small-caliber handgun. The bullet went in his thigh and bounced around inside his pelvis, leaving half a dozen tiny tunnels. The insides of his hips now look just like the insides of the bituminous coal mine where I first saw him, lean and pretty and leaning up against that ruined old mine cart. I had him take his pants off to show me. Blood trickled from the tiny entry wound, but everything from the bottom of his thighs to the top of his stomach was swollen and purple. He told me he needed to go to a doctor begged for me to get him some stuff, anything to take the edge off. I told him that wasn't possible, that we were near out of money and he'd be arrested if I took him to a hospital. He told me to do anything I could. He didn't care what. He just needed another hit. It hurt too bad. It was killing him. Then he looked at me and told me I was killing him. I pawned the turquoise boxes he bought us, most of our clothes, and the two pistols he had acquired since we left West Virginia. Blunt felt so far away then, sitting in the dark with him dying beside me in the stale autumn heat. I spent all the money on drugs, a bit of food, and a straight razor so I could shave him, which I did. Luther stopped by about a week after Todd had been shot. He stood in the door, repulsed by some smell I hadn't noticed. He asked me what I was going to do, what I expected to happen. I told him I didn't know. Todd wasn't going to get better, and if he did, he'd just leave me anyway. In the depths of his eyes, behind the drugs and the pain, I saw fear when he looked at me. No hint of love or longing, no apology for how he'd treated me, just fear and a dull sort of hate. Luther reached out and took my hand then, and I knew what options I had. I knew Luther wanted me, my body. Terribly. I was still young and beautiful, and my pregnancy was little more than a slight bump that any dress could hide. Would he accept a child as part of my being there? I knew he would. I knew I could make him want that child as much as me, and I could sell him the Golden Gate Bridge with that hot piece of hellfire between my legs. And I thought of you, 
I thought of you in a long line of daddies, stretching out across the Midwest and back into my history to the first one, the real daddy who put me on you like a curse. I thought of raising a pretty little version of myself with Todd's hair and big blue eyes and all the daddies I could give her. All the not-her-sisters and not-her-brothers who'd have to make way once we entered the nest. Luther kept talking while I thought of that line of violence and tainted love that had brought me to Blunt, that had shot me out of West Virginia like a cannon, that had torn my heart and soul to blackened pieces before I ever became a woman. And I thought of Trixie, who told me how much she'd wanted a sister, who read so well despite how young she was, and who trusted you when you took her to play hide-and-seek in the woods around midnight. Who cried and called me sissy when you told me to take that axe and earn your keep, you ungrateful little bitch. Luther told me he'd treat me right and ran his hand over my cheek. I looked up at him like I'd looked at Todd all those many months ago when I asked him, yeah, would he? And I kissed him. And he told me the cops already knew where we were that he'd tip them off to get a friend of his out of a bind over the trouble Todd had caused, but I really didn't have a choice anyway. I told him that was fine by me, because Todd was weak and a junkie to boot, and he didn't know how to treat a lady. And I asked Luther, did he? Did he know how to treat a lady? Could he show me? He asked if Todd was still there, and I said, yeah, he was. But he was junked out and wouldn't wake up for hours. I told him we had a little space atop the table just inside the door that I didn't care about being comfortable because it had been so long since I had a real man. Luther smiled at me and shut the door behind him. I pulled him over to the table and sat and wrapped my legs around him, pulling him close. Our tongues met in my mouth and then his. He didn't notice me slide the federal agent's tiny little pistol out of my purse and put it behind his ear. He squeezed my breast and then bit my lips so hard it bled when I shot him tearing away a thin piece of skin when he fell away. My ears rang. Todd lay in a daze on the mattress. I went over to him anyway and lay down beside him. I told him I loved him, and I meant it. And I told him he was the best thing that had ever happened to me, and that was true, too. I curled up beside him and slept one last time, never smelling the rot setting into the wounds on his stomach or the filth he was leaving behind in the bed. I woke and started writing this. I started this morning and now it's almost midnight. The moon is up outside and the windows are open. The breeze feels nice. Warm, despite the brown and gold leaves on the trees outside. There aren't many of them in this neighborhood, but the ones I can see are so very beautiful. There are men down on the street, and I know they aren't from the neighborhood because they're mostly white and have good posture and comfortable shoes. If they arrested me, I bet I could talk my way out of a life sentence. The papers have blamed everything on Todd because he's a man and nobody believes women can do evil things. Not really. But if they do evil things, they're trite and pointless. Crimes of passion, neglect, or stupidity. I understand that everybody that has died on our sojourn across America is dead because I was sick of getting ice cream at buses. Because I wanted more than the quiet security the men you prayed on provided because I couldn't handle the guilt of what I did to Trixie or face the consequences like a human being. I could have ended this thing whenever I wanted to, and I didn't. I hate you, Mama. I hate you like you wouldn't believe. 
Maybe you do. You never mentioned your mama, and I can only imagine she was just like us. Or at least bad enough you turned out the way you did. I'm not writing you to say goodbye. I'm writing you so that you know I did all this on my own. I did it for me. Because I'm my own bad person. Not because you corrupted me or because Todd drove me crazy. I did this. All of this. And I did it for me. And if anybody else happens to read this, you should understand that Todd was the innocent bystander. Tell his mama or papa or whoever is still around that he got wrapped up with a bad woman who twisted him around her little finger like a piece of taffy. That he could have walked away from that armored car or me or this life at any time if I'd have let him. And he wanted to. But I didn't. And if anybody else happens to read this, Trixie McIntosh is buried in a busted old woodshed off rural Route 5 outside of Blunt, West Virginia. She was the most wonderful little girl and I killed her with an axe because I'm a coward. I'm going to finish this letter now and leave it up here on this table. Then I'm going to take Todd down off the bed and bring him by the window. The breeze is nice and I want him to feel that before I take that straight razor I bought and send us both to hell. And God, I hope there is a hell. Because if there is, then there is a heaven. And if there is, the Trixie will be up there with her mama, living some sort of happiness. And that when you die, you'll be down here with me. All my love. Junebug. was Child of Sparrows. What did you think? What would you have done if you were in Junebug's position? Have you ever been mired in a terrible family situation in your own life? I've spoken to tons of people in my life who've said their own family put the first few skeletons in their closet. We're dying to know what you think, so don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or by emailing us at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at westsidefairytales, and we're simply westsidefairytales on Facebook and Instagram. We always love talking with fans, so hop online and send us a message. We'd also appreciate it if you could show some love by dropping by our iTunes and Stitcher pages to rate and review us. It's hard as hell to crack into the charts with a straightforward, no-gimmicks fiction podcast like ours, and we need all the help we can get. Next month, we bring you the story of a church inquisitor who's responding to allegations that a demon has infested the local priest. This is, by far, one of the oddest stories we'll be bringing you this season and also one of my favorite like all of our episodes it'll be available on the first friday of the month but until then as always stay safe out there Westside fairy tales is written read and produced by tyler bell all content herein is copyright 2018 tyler bell
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.